don't forget to listen to The Last Post. 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 Oh, yeah. (laughs) Alice, tell tell our listeners you may not have heard yet. Uh, The Last Post is a daily Daily, podcast uh, that is piped into my email every day from an alternate dimension. There is an alternate universe, Alice Fraser, who hosts this satirical news podcast, and she talks about all the news that's happening over there. I think it's uh, groundbreaking. I'm working with some scientists to figure out if we can send some emails back to her, but I enjoy listening to it. I hope you... Tune in, tune in, subscribe. subscribe, subscribe I think there's a there's a quite successful Andy Zaltzman on that side of the. Uh, yeah, burning with jealousy. He just yeah. came out of the celebrity jungle. Yeah. Subscribe now in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and all the other good places. Places, 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 places. places. New water, new, 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 new. Bugle, audio newspaper for a visual world. Hello, Buglers, and welcome to issue 4138 of the world's foremost gallery of the Newsular Podcastic Arts. It is Thursday the 23rd of January. I am Andy Zaltzman, for now at least, and I'm in London, where it is really starting to feel like we haven't hosted an Olympics for almost three quarters of a decade, and that is not a feeling I'm enjoying even one little bit. Uh, We are recording today in the Cock Lane studio, uh, let's hope my guest joining me here in Cock Lane enjoys this street rather more than 17th century celebrity writer John Bunyan, who came here in 1688, not to do a recording, I should add, and promptly died. Uh, so, <laughs> best of luck. Uh, it's uh, Al Murray. He was from Bedford. Was it? Oh, yeah. I, I, I went to school in Bedford, and he was one of those sort of people that was dangled over us as an example. <laughs> <laughs> the thing about Cock Lane, of course, is when you put it into Google Maps, it says people also searched for Minge Street. <laughs> Fanny Alley or whatever. It's really well, funny. Well, there was a, a famous haunting here by a ghost called Scratching Fanny, which I, I think probably the first time we recorded in this studio we <laughs> talked about in probably an almost infantile level of depth. <laughs> um, We've come to the right place. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely. Um, yes, uh, coincidentally, uh, as I mentioned, this, this site of the... Well, in fact, the fraudulent hauntings turned out uh, to be uh, to be a fake. Uh, like so many hauntings. Um, uh, but coincidentally, our second guest today is coming from the other side of a Skype call to Kolkata, India. It's Anuvab Pal. Hello, Al. Hello, Andy. Hey. Hello. How's uh, how uh, how are you? And how is uh, how's Calcutta? Well, speaking of ghosts, I'm doing this uh, Skype call from very close to the Victoria Memorial. Uh, a large white thing left behind by Queen Victoria in <laughs> India. And uh, and it is rumoured that her ghost haunts the building, even though she's never visited. <laughs> well, I mean, that's the kind of talent that you get with, with royals. They can, they can haunt over a distance of... That is thousands fa- of that's miles. fantastic. If she can, act, if she's doing that, yeah. I mean, I suppose once you're, um, you know, you know, once you've died, your spirit's free to wander. So maybe she's on some sort of global tour of the places she never got to. Right. I don't know, after Brexit, are all British ghosts going to be restricted to haunting <laughs> in Britain only? Freedom of movement. <laughs> <laughs> We've started strong, Al. Uh, <laughs> we are recording on the twenty third of January. Um, uh, Monday is the uh, 27th of January, uh, which marks the 21st anniversary of the 27th of January, 1999, which was the day I did my first proper stand-up gig. Um, not far from here, in uh, Old Street at the uh, the Comedy Caf. It was a real sliding doors moment for me, as uh, I'd applied for a job at a cricket magazine. I did, uh, did an open mic gig. If I hadn't gone well, I'd probably given up comedy, and you know, things could have gone... Very differently. I could have easily ended up spending way, way too much time watching cricket. Um, 
Uh, 24th of January, tomorrow, Friday, is Belly Laugh Day, but luckily we're recording on Thursday the 23rd, so a uh, slight snigger is all we've got to wait for. Imagine how much funnier the show would be if it had been tomorrow. Um, and uh, the 25th, uh, Saturday, which uh, is when uh, the show will essentially be released, uh, is Room of One's Own Day, so you can listen to this show uh, with no belly laughs, as God intended, in quiet solitude. As always, some sections of the Bugle are going straight in the bin this week. We have a vegan fashion section, um, including the latest vegan fashions, including Folifant mock ivory made from consensual elephant-shaped trees painted with leftover out-of-date mayonnaise sachets, well, vegan mayonnaise, and um, the new new material sweeping vegan fashion, turfurt. Is it turf? Is it fur? It's turf, but it looks and feels like fur. Green fur, but feels like grass anyway. And um, it's the must-have fur. Uh, must have material for 2020. Um, January is Hobby Month, where we review the latest hot hobbies sweeping the world, material-free knitting, or the relaxation of conventional wool knitting, but without any actual yarn. Uh, not only is it easier to get those tricky designs right, but also no unwanted, unneeded piece of half-assed clothing at the end. And you never know, you might even be able to sell it to an emperor. Uh, bridge slamming, that's a great new uh, fitness exercise. So go to your nearest bridge and then uh, criticise it for its architecture, its traffic capacity and its inability to change before running home in fear. And extreme pessimism, very popular hobby these days. Uh, but we're focusing on perhaps the hottest hobby going around the world these days, freestyle blaming, with our special You and Your Grudge section. It's nearing the end of January, and the optimism and excitement of the new year has thoroughly worn off, replaced with the numbing realisation that you, your country and your species are irredeemably stuck in a self-perpetuating cycle of underachievement, failure and self-justificatory delusion. Who, who writes this? Who, was, it, was it Cage 189 in room 1643 again? Those sodding monkeys and those f***ing typewriters. <laughs> sure, I pay them peanuts, but A, they don't seem to mind, and B, I pay actual money for those peanuts. Um, anyway. Uh, so, but even though the inevitability of disappointment in yourself and the world around you has hit home by now in the year like a heavyweight boxer who went for a run on a snowy winter's morning in nothing but his speedos but forgot to take his keys with him. Those f***ing monkeys. But, but you can still keep things fresh, exciting and unpredictable by concocting for yourself a new grudge to hold, a new target to blame for your perceived and or invented problems, a new straw man political scarecrow to pretend to be terrified about. And this week, in our special supplement, the Bugle has paired up with America's top finger-pointing recrimination publication, The Grudge Report, and its editor, Denunziata Gripe Ostrasich, to offer you a special prize. You can win a brand-new resentment-fuelled car. Choose from the Invecto Obloquy, the Cavilla Umbridge, the Chagran Sensorio, the Mitsubishi Mifmaf, or the Boris Minor. Uh, all of these, not always helpfully, and often ironically amongst the most environmentally friendly vehicles available today, powered by pure resentment. Simply complete the following sentence in less than 20,000 words for your chance to win the Bugle Blame Game. I blame the blank for blank because blank. Choose from one of the following targets. The Greens, All Children, Buddhists, The 1960s, The Card Game Chase the Lady, The Past, Ruritanians, Maroon 5, Small Business or Megan. And choose one of the following global problems. Climate change, climate change denial, the declining attention span of um, uh, whoever it is is supposed to have declining attention spans these days. Uh, wokeness, meaning that no one is allowed to shout racist abuse on public transport anymore. I mean, where will it end? Infestations of giraffes, Antarctica, VAR in football, the sad decline of silent resentment and killer sniffles, uh, which are uh, currently uh, doing the rounds in uh, with considerable excitement in, in China. Do send your entries into either... Hello, Buglers at thebuglepodcast.com or the White House, Washington, D.C. 
They could do with changing things up for election year or any newspaper at themedia.com. They're always on the lookout for these things. Entries will be locked in a sealed container and fired into space to deter aliens from bothering to come to this disputatious loon of a planet. The deadline for your entries is the year 2074. That section <laughs> in the bin. Top story this week, India news. Uh, uh, Anuvab, um, India's been, um, well, as is generally the case, uh, in a bit of a strop with itself uh, recently um, over various things, including uh, the citizenship law. Can you just explain what's, uh, what's, what's been riling up the 1.3 billion people of your country? Well, Andy, I'm, I'm glad you, you bring this up. You know, um, fortunately, the British left behind a lot of good things the English language, various buildings, the railways, and some very cute sedition laws. <laughs> there is one in particular, Section 124A from 1860, uh, which was basically to quell rebellion against the British. And it said, whoever by words, either spoken or written, or by signs or visible representation, or otherwise brings or attempts to bring in hatred or contempt towards the government and the law of India, shall be punished with, and this is the part that always confused me, imprisonment for life, and a fine. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, it's good to cover your bases, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, imperialism doesn't pay for itself. Exactly. Yeah, I mean, that's what people they forget. They had overheads. <laughs> yeah. The Raj had overheads. Come on. Exactly. exactly. You have to sum up here for the constables. And what uh, we've done is we've kept that law for 70 plus years. And now um, India's embarked on a national citizens register which is lovely if you've got four or five million people and you are Finland, but if you've got 1.3 <laughs> billion people and you're out to embark on who and who is not a citizen in an otherwise completely chaotic, insane mess of a place that has 140 religions, uh, 562,000 dialects and languages, <laughs> you're going to run into a few protests. So, um... I understand that in the state of Jharkhand, 3,000 people have been accused of sedition for protests against this uh, the Citizenship Amendment Act. I mean, that's quite a lot of sedition uh, flying around there. The, the, the law at Anuvab is, um, is being controversial because for the first time it's amended the Citizenship Act of 1955 and made religion a basis for citizenship. And it said that uh, religiously persecuted minorities from some other countries can become citizens. But, for example, Muslims from Afghanistan, Bangladesh and Pakistan cannot on the grounds that they are not from minorities and therefore everything is fine. Is this another example of the unique logic of, uh, of Narendra Modi and his Hindu nationalist government? Exactly, exactly. And that's exactly the law. Um, again, you know, the, basically, like you said, the new citizenship law says if you are being persecuted anywhere around India, so if you're being persecuted in Pakistan, in Bangladesh, in Nepal, anywhere, you can come to India as long as you're a Hindu, you're a Sikh, you're a Buddhist, you're Jain, you're a Parsi uh, and a Christian. But if, if you're a Muslim, you cannot. Um, that's lovely. But uh, if you are in a country that has 250 million Muslims and... Uh, the second largest Muslim population in the world, uh, and some of their relatives are being persecuted, who just happened to have, during the independence, chosen to live in a neighboring country, uh, they'll have to tell their cousins and, and in-laws, uh, whoever is on that side of the border, sorry, you can't come, you have to go to Dubai. <laughs> 
I mean, this sounds to me, Anivab, like you're having another blast at us over the, the whole partition business, which was ages ago, ages ago. And, I mean, sure, next time, next next time we, we partition somewhere, which may be Scotland uh, in, the, in the near future, we'll get it, we'll absolutely nail it. Exactly, exactly. I mean, look, I, I think, you know, you guys did a, as, as good as a job that you could in the six days that you had to draw a border. <laughs> I think if you carry on like this, I'm going to have to issue a fine. <laughs> <laughs> but I have to say, uh, Andy, um, even though there were some inefficiencies in 1947, we have perfected those inefficiencies and over 70 years have sort of made chaos a bit of an art form. So the way I, sh- I can explain uh, this, this new amendment is, uh, I guess, Andy, in cricketing terms, all right, you have my full undivided attention. And I was, I'd was i resent the fact that you left that off, the list of things Britain left behind in India. <laughs> I apologise. We we do have cricket, but we've made it into a very different game that you won't be able to recognise. <laughs> um, so, uh, basically, it's like if you said in Britain, we will accept all Indians to come and live in Britain as long as they happen to be opening batsmen with beards under 30 yeah. who happen to have an Australian wife and whose last name is Dewan. Right. You're basically saying, I only want Shikhar Dewan, India's only <laughs> batsman. <laughs> but all Indian yeah. batsmen are welcome. Yeah, I mean, to be honest, I mean, that's less needed now after England's last few test matches. They've dug a, a couple of promising young batsmen out. But, I mean, a few, a few months ago, we'd have taken it. <laughs> what's, the, what's the threshold for sedition? What are we talking here? Have you got to, like, publish something, or is it holding a placard? I mean, or is it, you know, grumbling in the pub to your mates about the government what what what's the actual threshold because sedition sedition always that sounds like you know at least you've at least published a pamphlet for, <laughs> to, to do sedition or maybe done a podcast i mean that's modern that's, sedition isn't it i mean we yeah. are right here sedition central from cock, <laughs> cock, cock lane sedition central but, but what's the what's the threshold Al, that's a really great question um, so indians for the longest time were very lazy protesters <laughs> uh, it takes a lot it's very hot takes a lot of work to go out in the streets <laughs> Uh, public transport is difficult to come by. Uh, so to get Indians to protest over a long period of time, extremely difficult. You know, we're not Tehran. There aren't like nice little squares where you can gather and shout. Um, <laughs> you have to navigate a bunch of cows, a bunch of people, you know, delivery. But it's a, it's a hard everyday life. Andy, you've experienced it. Yeah, absolutely. Well, not, not I haven't been protested against in India, but... <laughs> Working on it. <laughs> so to get... Indians from uh, cities across India to continually protest over what is now, you know, almost a couple of months. Uh, and, you know, in small towns, big cities, they've definitely, the government's definitely pissed some people off. <laughs> they've, they've continued to say, oh, you know, this is nothing. It's just a few students. They shout and scream and then they're going to go away. When the protests have continued unabated, and these have just basically uh, been g- gatherings. I mean, they've just been... Uh, small numbers of people, and in India, small numbers of people, basically what I mean is the size of all of Denmark, uh, yeah, just, yeah. just the tiny bits of people gathering and singing songs, protesting, saying, you know, uh, you're dividing Hindus and Muslims by making this uh, refugee thing a religious thing. Um, that's all they've been doing. And so the government said, right, for the first time, the public have shown some tenacity. They have started showing up in places, singing songs, writing poems. Uh, we are going to bring this sedition law just to clear these crowds up. 
Oh, it's the poems, though. It's obviously it's poetry. <laughs> you know what these kind of poems would be like, wouldn't they? I mean, they, protest poems are never good, are they? Maybe, maybe the government. I'm starting to. I'm starting to change my mind about this. <laughs> a clampdown on poor student yeah, on poor, poetry. Poor student poetry. Well, I, I think a, we're all behind I it. I think now. this is what the Modi government needs to do to represent <laughs> the thing. No, you're absolutely right. The one that's most popular uh, right now, that's being sung at all the protests is a poem which loosely badly translates to we won't show citizenship papers and it's got you know various rhyme schemes but none of which rhymes oh man and one of the big issues is couldn't the protesters with all this education come up with a damn thing that at least rhymes <laughs> you just don't want free verse being chanted by thousands of people at once that's first rule of poetry especially when <laughs> india pops into so many limericks there was a man from madras <laughs> <laughs> so, so to answer your question, what they're doing is they're basically rounding up anybody uh, that's in groups and saying, you know, you've been damaging government property. You've been breaking cycles of constables. You've been throwing stones at police cars. And we're just going to gather you up and throw you in prison. And basically, there is no law in India, the post-independence, that gives you uh, the right to imprison someone without habeas corpus, which is they have to present you before a magistrate in 24 hours. And the magistrate could say, my God, you're disgusting. I'm throwing you in jail for three days. Um, but you have to go in front of a magistrate. What this sedition law does is you don't have to present them in front of anybody. You could just keep them in jail to just teach them a lesson about bad poetry. Uh, <laughs> and that's what's happening. And they didn't have a law that said that. So they looked around. They were desperate. They said, OK, we don't have a law. Is there anything the British did? <laughs> They found Section 124A. So that's what's been going on. Uh, cities big and small in India every weekend, uh, especially a place in Delhi. There's a place in Delhi called Shaheen Bagh, which has almost become protest central. Bollywood stars are going there. Actors are going there. Writers are going there. Uh, the people to sing songs are going there. Rappers are going there. Um, and uh, the government is really losing the battle of popular entertainment. Well, we've had that here. They just sound like they're... Liberal metropolitan elite, those people. To <laughs> <laughs> me, Al, it's uh, Andy. It's absolutely correct that you say that because one of the things that have been that's been going around on social media is the prime minister saying because a lot of these protests are led by college kids, and the prime minister at some point, some interview long time ago, when he was chief minister, said, uh, "You know, I haven't been to college. Uh, what, what the hell is the big deal in college?" Anyone can go to college. I'm self-taught. I mean, you can't argue with that, can you? No, I mean, logic like that is, yeah. I mean, <laughs> simply uh, impenetrable. Yes. Well, I mean, you should, you should shut down all universities. Imagine the money you'd save. And the poetry that would be averted. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, in terms of the, um, the the sort of register of citizens, in um, Assam last year, uh, almost two million people were left off and basically uh, described as illegal migrants out of a, a population of around about 30 million. So if you stretch that out across India as a whole, that's over 80 million people who will essentially cease to exist. Is, is this a concern or, or, I mean, is this not, not enough? Do we, I mean, is this the way <laughs> to deal with overpopulation around the world is just to tell people that they no longer exist? Look, Andy, I think, I think the best way to reduce population, you're right, in a country of 1.3 billion people, it's just to tell the world we've got 600 million people. <laughs> <laughs> Who's going to check? Yeah, and then just put the other half in one big house. Because um, I'll tell you a little bit about the citizenship registry that they're after. So they want a national citizens register. 
So basically what they're trying to do is go to a billion people and say, you, are you an Indian citizen? And uh, it's almost like a Monty Python sketch. And you say, yes. And they say, well, what do you have to prove it? And you say, well, I've got a tax document. I've got this tax thing from India. I've got uh, a national ID card. I've got a passport. And they say, no, 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 that's, that's not enough. We need to know you were born here. Do you have a birth certificate? Uh, do you have your parents' birth certificate? And most Indians, you know, uh, with at least 60% of people being below the poverty line, uh, still large parts illiterate in the north, uh, they turn around and say, I don't have my parents' birth certificate because I don't even know who my parents are. Uh, I, I barely know if this is my name, but this is what's on the, this is what's on the document. So this should work. They're like, no, this is not going to work. We need you to prove that you're a citizen. So uh, naturally, this, this citizenship registry thing is going to throw up huge problems. So the reason all these millions of people got left off the list was because they didn't have anything to prove that they were citizens. Uh, and then the government decided that now they were going to put all these people in a detention center just because they were saying they were Indians and they didn't have proof. Now, the difficulty with that is I don't have any proof. Uh, <laughs> yeah, if they took away my passport and my, my Indian ID, the all I have, Andy, to prove I'm a citizen of India is a photograph with Sachin Tendulkar. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's worth a lot in India. And actually, I, I, I have a question for you guys, because maybe you could help us. You say we might be able to help you. Um, we, we've had a bit of an issue in Britain with the whole Windrush uh, shamozzle, mm. uh, which sounds not entirely uh, dissimilar to this, albeit arguably more racist. Um, so I'm not sure. I don't know if we can help. Well, well, you know, I'm just curious to know what would be the most British thing that if you could prove, if someone knocked on your door and said, none of these documents are going to work, your red passport is not going to work. I've never been to India. That's the most British thing about me. <laughs> In the spirit of Queen Victoria, Empress of India herself, <laughs> I've never been there. <laughs> uh, we'd love to have you. In fact, we'd love it if you ran for Prime Minister. It, it seems like <laughs> yeah, it's a free-for-all. You could be. A, I reckon you could pass for a vice royal. Well, I, I could probably... The thing is, I imagine that the 318 votes I got in Thanet in 2015, <laughs> if you upscaled those um, to an Indian proportion of the electorate, yeah. that'd be like like 17 million, million or so, yeah, 80 yeah. million. Minimum. <laughs> if I had to prove that I'm British, I'm... Well, I don't know. I mean, obviously, if you cut me, I, I bleed red, white and blue, but that's a dietary issue more than anything else. Um, but... Um, <laughs> not, I'm not sure. Not sure. I'm in an, an innate knowledge of the history of Test cricket. I mean, that, I'm not sure that passes anymore, does it? Um, what's what's the most British thing about you, Al? Oh, um, the fact that my grandmother was from Austria. All right, there we go. <laughs> <laughs> Science news now, and well, some hugely exciting uh, scientific uh, news. Um, I mean, obviously, it's quite possible that everyone who's listening to this podcast right now is already dead. Um, particularly if you're listening to this five billion years from now or 200 years from now, depending on how Armageddon pans out, or if the coronavirus has wiped us all out by next Wednesday. Um, this is yet another virus, before you get on to the science news, that has apparently hopped across to us from the animal kingdom. And yet, the vegan lobby wants us to stop eating our way through all our mortal enemies <laughs> until we achieve safety, honestly. Um but anyway, I mean, you, how worried are you about this? Because I'm, I'm a lapsed hypochondriac, and actually, it's been quite nice to have another, you know, get the juices flowing again with a with a nice disease. Basically, if you want to, if you want to, if you're on a, on a paper and you need space to fill, you just say, you make up the name of a Chinese city. So there's <laughs> been a flare up. You call it mouse flu. <laughs> eight, eight have died, forty affected. Right, that's easy. So yeah. it's, it's, I mean, how do we even know? 
Fake flus. Fake flu. You can't trust anything these exactly. days. I mean, I, I mean, I'm not that worried, but then I wasn't that worried about the bubonic plague in the early 1300s, and that turned out really bad. Um, <laughs> I mean, I wasn't alive to be worried at the time, but still, the point stands. But anyway, <laughs> one way around this, Al, uh, and you mm. are our um, science correspondent, mm. of course, um, is hibernation. Yes. Well, scientists say. I mean, uh, and of course, th- there's, there's another great, um, there's another great bugle phrase. <laughs> scientists say um, they've been looking into the possibility of uh, of hibernation, of human hibernation, and um, because rats and bats. And I mean, there are animals we know about the hibernation: bears and and uh, dormice. I think yeah. you know dinosaurs. The, they're, di- I mean, they're almost too good at it. At some point, they're going to wake up. Yeah. At some point, um, and they've looked into whether you can basically get a human to hibernate. And the scientists involved in this said that there were no. Sh- what the thing? The expression they used was quite interesting. There are no showstoppers. <laughs> <laughs> around the issue of hibernation. I think the, right. the main showstopper for me is I don't want to. Right. They can't make me. Right. I mean, this is the problem, isn't it? The, the next thing next thing we know, this will become fashionable, won't it? Oh. And we'll all have to hibernate. Yeah. And life's the PC lo- brigade. Exactly. The PC brigade yeah. will be for saying, OK, it's uh, October. You should be bedding down now. <laughs> Science at some point is going to have to stop. Right. Draw the line. Give up. Right. Right, because there's no need for this, is there? Well, I mean, I, I disagree entirely, oh. Al. I mean, I've been calling for hibernation for, for years, <laughs> and mostly when I'm about to go to bed. Um, but, um, <laughs> but laying self-interest aside, to me, this is the most exciting science to emerge since Tim Berners-Lee thought, what if I could help people all around the world anonymously abuse each other on an instantaneous basis? Maybe even since Isaac Newton invented gravity, thus making tennis a way better sport, or even since Archimedes had the first inklings of the idea for the bath plug. Or even, since Pandora opened that box in the pockets of Big Pharma, of course, the uh, ancient Greek troublemakers. But the benefits of hibernation for me, Al, I mean, it's good for the environment. Yeah. Because you, you don't need your heating on in the winter if you're hibernating. Yeah. Um, uh, you can massage unemployment figures, can't you? Well, because, true. Yeah, if, you, if, you, if you're without a job for three weeks in a row, compulsory state hibernation. Well, I mean, Anavabs, uh, this entire Indian issue, you could half of India could hibernate, couldn't it? Exactly. That, that would, I want that. Yeah, exactly. While they're getting their paperwork done. <laughs> so exactly, can... exactly. In fact, uh, if you look around, most old people in India do. I think, uh, and, and which leads me to a question here, actually, about the definition. Now, for example, after eating a really large biryani, I'm usually knocked out from about two in the afternoon till about two the next day. Now, is that hibernation or am I just a fat, lazy person? That is the tranquilizer they're planning to use. <laughs> the biryani. <laughs> Do you know, well, I mean, most bears actually only hibernate after eating a leftover biryani out of a bin. This is one of the few things that is it's not really discussed, is it? Um, no, but the whole idea is you go, you go really cold, don't you? It's about, yeah. about being cold. It's know. quite hard to hibernate in India because it's never, it's never cold, is it? I mean, unless you go up into the, into the Himalayas or... I mean, it's ne- it's is it ever? It's never cold. When did it last snow in Mumbai, Anavab? Um, well, and probably the ice age. All right, okay. <laughs> you know. You've got long memories in your country, <laughs> don't we know it? Um, <laughs> to, to me, I see hibernation merely as an entry point, and really, you want to go long term with this and go full suspended animation. You know, the fifty-year hibernation. I think we talked about it on the bugle before, bribonation, uh, paid for by the government. Uh, and really, I mean, it saves taxpayers' money, it's what politics is all about, and solve the declining birth rate in Western countries, wouldn't it? There are people saying, oh, you know, we're not having enough children. But you just pop an entire generation in the freezer, 10 minutes in the microwave, bingo, 
new generation to look after us when we're old. Oh, I've come here for ideas today, and yeah. they couldn't be any better, could they? Exactly. This is incredible. Also, so I mean, it's not a nightmare vision of the future, <laughs> no, is it? It's not. It would make awesome reality TV as well. <laughs> the celebrity panel has to decide who to thaw out this week. Is it Eric, the genius scientist who might be able to solve the world's agricultural problems with a new high yield vegan sheep spelt hybrid, but is also a serial killer, or Doreen, a nice old lady who wouldn't hurt a flea and used to work in a charity shop? Tough call. <laughs> In other science news, invisible aliens could already be among us. Uh, this is according to another scientist. Following comments from the British astronaut Helen Sharman, uh, who was uh, Tim Peake before Tim Peake was Tim Peake, but was a woman and not paid with taxpayers' money, therefore, uh, and also before the age of Omnihype, so she didn't become Tim Peake, whereas Tim Peake did become Tim Peake. Anyway, Helen Sharman, the pre-Tim Peake Tim Peake, uh, said that she believes aliens do exist and could be living undetected amongst us already here on Earth. Uh, she might be thinking of communists. It's, it's hard to tell. Um, <laughs> and um, uh, Samantha Rolfe, who is an astrobiologist, uh, a watcher by what logist, you ask, an astrobiologist, uh, she says that if invisible aliens do live amongst us, they're most likely living in a microscopic shadow biosphere. By that, she wrote, I don't mean a ghost realm, but they are undiscovered creatures probably with a different biochemistry, which means we can't study or even oh, notice them... Honestly. ..because they are outside of our comprehension. Honestly. I mean, yeah, I think that too. <laughs> Prove me wrong. I mean, honestly. <laughs> Dear me. Was she on, like, what, 45 grand a year to come up with? Yeah, it's a big conspiracy, it's isn't it? Big, I mean, you know, that is an easy life, yeah. isn't it, being an astrobiologist? Yeah. That is an e I hope you're listening. Big astrobiologist easy, got it sewn up. Easy life. <laughs> exactly. Oh, yeah, I reckon there's a shadow realm... <laughs> Not well, not a shadow. I want to call it that, but like a parallel system of micro. Oh, for fuck's sake! I mean, the problem, invisible aliens. To me, just I mean, that's shit sci-fi films, isn't it? Yeah, really, really. Especially awful. Unpro I mean, a proper invisible alien would like knock your glass over. Yeah, wouldn't it? And nudge you occasionally, or whisper in your ear. Yeah, something you know. Uh, uh, turn the turn the kitchen light off when yeah. you go to bed. Something useful, wouldn't it? But this is like this is. This is uh, 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 baloney. Yep. I'm sorry, I did I, I, and I know I'm taking on astroscience here, <laughs> astrobiology. I know Someone's I'm got one, to... Well, one man prepared to make a stand finally against, <laughs> against the astrobiologist PC brigade. <laughs> um, can't say anything anymore. Well, no, but this idea that you can't notice them because they're outside of our comprehension, so I mean, because it's quite hard to get your head round. I guess we've got to think of them very much like the Victorians used to think of children or <laughs> my all-boys private school used to think of women um, or even as Narendra Modi thinks of, of Muslims. So, But basically, I mean, what this says to me is we've got invisible aliens perving on us in the shower and I'm not at all happy about that. Oh, I'm coming around to the idea. <laughs> <laughs> uh, could it also be because, you know, these aliens are very sort of Victorian and polite and British and don't want to bother our world, so they've made a little thing of theirs and they have their own Netflix and everything? Right. The polite alien. You see, you never see the polite alien. If you don't mind, awfully, I, yes. we'd like to stay on our planet. Yeah. Yeah. There's not too much trouble. Yeah. Yeah, I could see that. Yeah. Yes. I mean, we, I mean, we, 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 we know we won't, we won't, we won't use up any of your natural resources. <laughs> Just want to sort of be hang around, if that's all right by you. Right. <laughs> Jolly good. You're, yeah. you're triggering our Indian guest at the other end of the line. Huh? <laughs> it was his careful. idea. <laughs> <laughs> we have been here before. <laughs> 
Jeff Bezos having his phone hacked by the Crown Prince of Saudi Arabia news now, and this is one of the most extraordinary stories of, uh, uh, well, of the of the, the millennium, any millennium. The Amazon billionaire Jeff Bezos had his phone hacked, apparently, by the Crown Prince of Saudi Arabia uh, with an infected WhatsApp video link. Um, I mean, for a start, why are you in a WhatsApp group with the Crown Prince of Saudi Arabia? Well, yeah, so that pr- so it, it intimates that they're pals. Yeah. And so there's treachery in this as well, isn't there? Like, not only... So first of all, it's sort of like, hey, you know, let's be billionaires and hang out together. Um, and I'm the groovy crown prince and, you know, and you're... you're I mean, it's very odd It's uh, that they should know... Where did people... They probably meet at Davos, don't they, people like that? Yeah. They probably met last year at Davos, didn't they? And hung out <laughs> and uh, yeah. the, and their crown prince says, yes, you can bring Amazon to my country, but there's a, these are the things you can't sell. And business is going, well, I don't know about that. I'm not sure. And then the next thing, you know, they're pals and they're exchanging funny videos. Because yeah. it was a video clip, wasn't it? That, that it was well, corrupted. yes. This is the intriguing thing. What was... What was in that video? What was Jeff Bezos expecting from a video from the <laughs> Crown Prince? Was he expecting a cat playing with a cucumber? A dog on a skateboard? Uh, the new Avril Lavigne video, perhaps? <laughs> Maybe YouTube footage of uh, Garfield Sobers batting at Lords in 1973? <laughs> Maybe top 10 spring break epic fails? <laughs> or a cartoon instructional video about how to clean up after an assassination in an embassy? Uh, or even uh, deepfake hardcore pornographicals uh, featuring Steve Bannon, Martha Washington, Tutankhamun, and the controversial 1960s tennis star Margaret Court? Who knows? Who knows what video he was about? It is. I mean, this is. I mean, also, it makes me think that our royal family needs to buck its fucking ideas up. Because I cannot imagine our equivalent, Prince Charles, even having the technological capacity to send a text message, let alone hack into the phone of one of the most powerful commercial human beings in history uh, before months later orchestrating the assassination of a journalist. I'm not, I'm not saying that the Crown Prince of Saudi Arabia would do that. I'm just saying he's got the logistical chops to hypothetically and actually pull it off. <laughs> um, I mean, this, this, there's concerns that this could affect Saudi Arabia's attempts to lure Western business and investment into the country, which... What, by acting normal? Well, <laughs> we're, we're, we're by <laughs> this sharing... Is normal. This is normal, shabby Western behaviour. I think this is a major breakthrough for the Crown it, Prince. It, yeah. he, sent someone a, he sent someone a buggy <laughs> message. I mean, welcome <laughs> aboard. Welcome aboard, yes. Your Royal Highness. This is fantastic to... You know, I mean, this is... The next thing he knows, he'll, he'll be sending out emails going, um, I have a million pounds in a bank, and if you send me a million pounds, <laughs> it could be released. I think that's basically how it already works, isn't it? But, yeah, if you're not put off by the illegal war, the gender apartheid, the political repression, the de facto slavery, the questionable record on press freedom and the uh, targeted assassinations, having your phone hacked, that is the... In the week that Terry Jones sadly passed away, the wafer-thin ethical mint... <laughs> It is said that uh, the reason that Mohammed bin Salman hacked into Jeff Bezos's telephone was to find out any dirt on him because the Washington Post that Jeff Bezos owns was doing a lot of negative stories on Saudi Arabia. And it appears that uh, the thing they found was the fact that uh, Mr. Bezos was involved in a slightly illicit affair and uh, details, murky details of his private life came out in the National Enquirer a bunch of months later, and uh, it seems like it was seeded here that this bug led to some information from his phone 
which led to this National Enquirer story. Um, I, I just tried to make a list of things they would find on my phone if anyone had to. <laughs> um, and, and I just want to know what would happen if Mohammed bin Salman went into your phone. This is what I've got. Um, in my notes section on my phone, I've written from many months ago, I don't know why, are there any fat Nazis? <laughs> <laughs> if there was a race between a shark and a leopard, who would win? Uh, I've got a note from today. Remember to be clever, parentheses bugle. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> shark versus leopard. I mean, that so much depends on who gets home advantage, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. It's one hell of a triathlon. <laughs> They're both shit on the bike. <laughs> but I mean it's going to be tough for Saudi Arabia they're going to have to pull out all the stops to repair the reputational damage uh, we're talking a absolute deluge of top level sporting events to wash this one away uh, I mean Olympics, Super Bowl they could even host Wimbledon next year just to smooth this over <laughs> um, we are we have run out of time and oh. we've uh, we've not even uh, had time to Turn to the Davos climate squabble or uh, impeachment. I would imagine the impeachment story is not going to completely go away within the next seven days. Next week, we are recording uh, on the day before Brexit. Um, so that will be a happy one. Um, Al, thanks very much for... Uh, it's my pleasure as ever. ...for coming on. Um, I've brought my Brexit pin. Uh, I've got three now. Right. <laughs> three Independence Day pins. They're right. all identical except for the dates. Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's going to be one hell of a balloon <laughs> this time next week. Anuvab, uh, thanks very much, uh, as always, for your uh, insight and wisdom on the uh, wonderful situation. <laughs> Indian politics, I mean, it, it never it never stops giving, does it? Well, Andy, you know, I'm, I'm glad. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. A pleasure Andy. But, Andy, but I have to say, you know, it is what um, uh, Rudyard Kipling once said about India. Uh, he said, it looks quiet, but something's always on fire. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think, OK. I mean, that, that, those are opposite words for us to end this week's Bugle on. Thank you very much for listening, Buglers. We'll be back next week. Until then, goodbye. We will play you out now with some lies about our premium-level voluntary subscribers. Khalil Kasimali is of the opinion that helicopter is not an acceptable name for a child, is borderline for a dog, but is absolutely fine for a budgerigar. However, Khalil would never own a budgie due to concerns about the ethics and, more importantly, the methods of the smuggling industry surrounding the birds. Jeremy Ribakov recently overheard a heated argument between a couple in a fancy restaurant concerning the ethics of testing new luxury mattresses on laboratory elks, which culminated in the woman saying to the man, this is exactly why I'm never using Tinder again, and the man making an antler sign at her as he stormed out. Corey and Jason Lubniewski in the same restaurant also overheard a row between a young boy and his grandmother who refused to pay out for the kids' sponsored vegan January because, and I quote, I saw you running through a cobweb with your mouth open. 
It certainly was a cranky evening. Chris Carr was dining on a separate table, and his dessert was thoroughly spoilt when a physical fight broke out between a professional mountaineer and the head chef over whether, if you planted an egg in the crevice of a glacier, it would hatch into an ice chicken. Tucker Burley was unconvinced by a late-night TV advertisement for an inflatable chopping board, but by morning had convinced himself that it would actually force you to cut your food very carefully and give you the added bonus of being able to boing your food directly from chopping board into frying pan. Christopher Fanaghi and Mim Glasby, who had never met until appearing in this light together, confided in each other that they had both, for several weeks a few years ago, had a recurring nightmare in which they found themselves pitching ideas for increasingly unwatchable and tasteless TV shows to a roomful of disapproving former American presidents. Christopher pitched the show Surgeon Sturgeon, a fish-based hospital comedy to a stern-faced Zachary Taylor, whilst Mim proposed Beggar's Beliefs, in which a panel of celebrities have to guess the religious and philosophical leanings of homeless people. The idea was tersely rejected by Rutherford B. Hayes. Ted Alkins, who by coincidence was having exactly the same recurring dream, had more luck. His idea, a children's series for a religious TV channel called The Churchtables, about a fridge full of ecclesiastical vegetables trying to avoid being made into a salad, featuring characters such as Archbishop Turnip, Cardinal Carrot and the Very Reverend Radish, absolutely charmed the usually implacable Grover Cleveland. Here endeth this week's lies. Very carefully and give you the added bonus of being able to boing your food directly from chopping board into frying pan. Christopher Fanaghi and Mim Glasby, who had never met until appearing in this light together, confided in each other that they had both, for several weeks a few years ago, had a recurring nightmare in which they found themselves pitching ideas for increasingly unwatchable and tasteless TV shows to a roomful of disapproving former American presidents. Christopher pitched the show Surgeon Sturgeon, a fish-based hospital comedy to a stern-faced Zachary Taylor, whilst Mim proposed Beggar's Beliefs, in which a panel of celebrities have to guess the religious and philosophical leanings of homeless people. The idea was tersely rejected by Rutherford B. Hayes. Ted Alkins, who by coincidence was having exactly the same recurring dream, had more luck. His idea, a children's series for a religious TV channel called The Churchtables, about a fridge full of ecclesiastical vegetables trying to avoid being made into a salad, featuring characters such as Archbishop Turnip, Cardinal Carrot and the Very Reverend Radish, absolutely charmed the usually implacable Grover Cleveland. Here endeth this week's lies. Hi, it's producer Chris from The Bugle here. Did you know that I have a new series of my podcast, Richie Firth Travel Hacker, out now? It's the show where Richie Firth and I talk about how to make travel better in our very special way. In this series, we discuss line bikes, Teslas, the London Overground, and a whole bunch of other random stuff that possibly involves wheels or tracks or engines of some variety. God, what a hot sell this is. I mean, you, you, you must be so excited. Listen now.